0: Amen. Sayida, thank you for ministering to our family this weekend. Thank you. Thank you. Jesus, we thank you for your life. Because you live, we live. And that's what we want, Lord. Would you breathe fresh wind into our lungs? Would you fill our lives with your spirit? Would you allow us to experience the joy of your resurrection? We love you. We praise you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. You guys can be seated or you can already be seated. You're already there. I open my eyes and you guys are already there. I, you know, this, this whole uh, last night and today, I just keep saying, how in the world am I supposed to preach after that? And uh, I don't know. I just feel like I should get up and say amen and we should just go like eat Easter lunch. I don't know what we should do. But, um, but there's Leviticus to be preached from. And so how do we skip this? So... Easter is a religious holiday. That's what we call it in our culture. On your calendar, when you mark religious holidays, this one pops up. It's a religious holiday. It's not like other holidays. It's different. But I have an issue with calling Easter a religious holiday. And I think in a few minutes you'll know why. You'll understand my frustration with calling this religious. But we are going to talk about religion. In fact, we're going to talk about three aspects of religion today. We're going to talk about, first of all, how God used religion Then we're going to talk about how God ended religion, and then we're going to talk about how God reversed religion. Those three ideas, how God used religion. God used religion at one point, and then God ended religion, and then God reversed religion. And we're going to talk about this today, but all of that begins with us pondering a very very basic fundamental human question, and that is this, where did religion come from? Where did religion actually come from? Where did humanity come up with this idea that there was somebody somewhere that needed to be worshipped or needed to be appeased? Like, like, where did we get the idea that um, that if we behaved a particular way, we could alter the mood or the actions of some deity or some force that's beyond us? Where do we think that if we did the right things, that deity would move in favor towards us? Or where did we get the idea, which is often the case, that if somehow we failed to do the right thing, that deity would be angry with us. Where did that actually come from? Where did that actually develop for us? Um, I'm going to give you the, the history of religion in a nutshell, and it just starts really basically. It starts that there was people like us. There were living, breathing people, human beings just like us, and these living, breathing people began to realize that there were certain things that were outside the scope of their control. There were things that would take place. There were things that were that would happen that, that they had very little explanation for. There, was, there, there seemed to be some reason behind life being given and life being taken, but it was 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 outside of their control. There was this sense that they were subject to things like wind and rain and seasons and storms and earthquakes, and they would look at these things and they all spoke to the reality that there must be something beyond this. And so the conclusion, the natural conclusion that early human beings drew was this idea that there must be something or someone beyond the temporal Which, by the way, that's a really good observation. In fact, that's a very natural observation that that human beings make. Most human beings, when we're honest with ourselves and when we think about it, when we take a deep breath, we look at the universe around us and there seems to be this conclusion that this cannot be all that there is. There must be someone or something beyond this. And so they drew the same conclusion that we would draw. Someone must be out there. But then they did something really interesting and somewhat twisted. They reasoned that if they did certain things, they might force those gods to be happy with us. Like if I do something that the forces like, these gods like, these deities like, then, then I will survive or then maybe I'll have what I need and thus begin this thing called religion. And let me just explain, when I say religion, what I'm saying is that any system where activities are engaged in on behalf of humans in order to appease a god, in order to do something to manipulate god, that is what we call religion, that is a religious system. And the way we started living this out, we we started thinking about this in terms of sacrificial systems. We developed sacrificial systems. Um, This is universal. You look at early human civilization, whether it's oral history, written history, or whether it's among the ruins of ancient civilizations, there is evidence of sacrificial systems everywhere all over the world. And sacrificial systems basically worked like this. If I get something, I give something. If the gods Uh, bless me with something, then I give something back to the gods. I give something in return. And the idea is that if I give something in return, well, maybe they'll be more inclined to give me what I need in the days ahead. And so there were different gods in different places that are responsible for all of these different things. And these gods are also moody and they're distant and they're unpredictable and they're somewhat narcissistic, if you ask me. And so the natural outcome of the sacrificial system is that it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. The demands are increasing. The more religion grows, the more the demand is for you to perform. The more you make, the more you give. The more you get, the, more you, the less you get, you, sh- you should have given more. All of the, this kind of thinking begins to leak in. And it keeps escalating more and more, and eventually it turns barbaric. In fact, um, There's historical evidence in cultures all over the world that that this religious understanding led civilizations, it led humans, it led moms and dads to sacrifice their own children to these gods. In fact, when you read in the Hebrew scriptures, your Old Testament, when you read in the Hebrew, Hebrew scriptures, there's the god Molech. And the god Molech was hated and despised because it seemed like the only thing that could appease Moloch in the eyes of these civilizations around the Hebrews was the sacrifice of a child. See, that's the problem with religion. It just keeps... Demanding more. You have to keep offering more. And so deep inside of the collective conscious of human humanity is this primal sense of fear and worry, of insecurity, of I don't know where I stand with the gods. I don't know if they're gonna bless me or they're gonna curse me. And so people live with this profound sense of anxiety. If I wrong my neighbor, how do I make sure that I did something to right that wrong so the gods don't punish me? Or how do I know that I'm that I'm in the right connection with this God? Is the God angry with me? Um, there were things they would observe in their world. If it didn't rain for 30 days, they would think, well, did it not rain because of something that I did? Or if it rained nonstop for 30 days, like it does in Portland, Oregon sometimes, we call that December. But back then, they would have said something like, is that my fault? Is it not, is it raining nonstop because of something that I've done? That's the way they lived. And so people lived with guilt and lived with insecurity and there was no peace. There was no sense of certainty. And certainly there was no peace with God. So, so in a nutshell, this is the birthplace of religion. This is what was stirring in the world. And so the question is, what do we do with this? And there's just a handful of responses. Um, for some people, we haven't really changed much. We've just taken some of the barbaric nature of this out, and we still live very religiously. We've just changed the rites and rituals. We've changed the vocabulary, but we still live in a religious way. We still do certain things. We still behave certain ways in hopes to manipulate God into loving us or giving us favor. And some of us are afraid that we haven't done it. And maybe that explains some of the bad things that take place in our life. And so that sort of persists today. That's one response to it. But there's another response, and that's that some people reject it. Some people say, well, that's ridiculous, and those systems are primitive and barbaric. But then you're left with this sort of, sort of, existential question of how am I going to get rid of this guilt? How am I going to get rid of the shame? How am I going to get rid of those things? Because by the way, those are universal experiences. Everybody feels those things. And so how do you get rid of those? If you don't have religion, then how do you get rid of those? Those are the two responses that most people have. Either they lean in religiously or they just sort of reject it, but they're stuck with these things. But very few people actually stop to look at history and to see the story that history actually tells about a third option. History tells another story. Um, Something happened and everything changed. Something that that we read in history takes place and it emerges out of this story and it's beautiful. Um, When you read the Bible, this is not some detached, faraway fantasy. The Bible emerges and even the book of Leviticus emerges out of this environment that I just described to you. Uh, It emerges right in the middle of all the confusion and worry and anxiety and all the religion. So in Leviticus chapter 16, which is where we're going to be today, um, we see something that is beautiful and wonderful. In fact, I've said this, if you've been with us, by the way, if you're new with us, we've been studying the book of Leviticus, which is really strange because it it seems barbaric and it seems gruesome. And yet to the people that received it in the context I just described, it was wildly eye-opening and it was beautiful and it showed people who God was and showed them things that they'd never understood before. But but today we're going to look at something very specific in Leviticus chapter 16. So if you want to turn to your Bible there, you can. Um, In fact, when we planned this series months ago, we planned that on this day, we would actually be talking about Leviticus chapter 16 because there's a specific feast, a specific ritual that has something to do with today. And it's a feast called the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. Uh, Yom Kippur takes place 10 days into the Jewish New Year, which is called Rosh Hashanah. And, And prior to this celebration, the month prior, every morning, the people would be awakened to the blowing of the shofar. The shofar is this ram's horn. And and the people would blow this horn and they would wake up and it was signaling that they were moving into a season of of, of repentance or what the Jewish people call teshuva. And teshuva is is this idea that I reflect on my life, I look at what I've done, I look at who I am, and then I think about those areas where I've distanced myself from God and his ways and I turn back towards him and begin to move and take steps towards this God. And so, so Yom Kippur begins with 10 days of introspection, 10 days of people sitting and just pondering and considering and saying, like, what are the things that I've done? What are the things that I've been engaged with? What kinds of of insecure things have I done? What kinds of hurtful things have I done? What kinds of of things have I done to distance myself from God? They would consider this. And then on the 10th day of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, um, there, there was a specific thing that they would do. And Leviticus 16 actually says, this is how. How you do this so the beginning of the year you've examined yourself you've done this and there's instructions and the instructions begin with instructions for the priest so the priest would cleanse himself and we've read in Leviticus that was really important he had to cover himself before he could cover others but then we come to this he gets two of one of our favorite animals these days around B. Four. he gets two goats and he brings them out on the day of atonement and listen to what it says about these goats Leviticus sixteen seven. says, then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. So he sacrifices one goat in the way that we've read about earlier in Leviticus for the sin offering. But now there's this other goat, the Azazel, which literally, when you translate Azazel to English, it is the scapegoat. The second goat is called the scapegoat. So check out what happens next. Verse 21 says, Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat. He's leaning on the goat. And confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. So the people spend 10 days examining their souls, considering their brokenness. The Think about the shame. You know, sh- shame is a reflection of the things that we know that nobody else knows, right? They're considering their shame. They're considering their guilt, the things that they wish would have gone a different way in their past. They're considering their insecurity. They're, they're thinking about those conversations they have and they, they go, why did, I, why did I ever say that to that person? Why did I respond that way in that situation? They're, they're thinking about their anxiety, the worry that... That, that troubles them, that doesn't leave them. Which, by the way, we all have these feelings and we have no way of dealing with them. In this day, there was no way of dealing with these things. And yet everything inside of us, even today, wants these things to be dealt with. So what we're reading about in Leviticus chapter 16 is God giving away. God presents a way to deal with the guilt and the shame and the anxiety and the worry and the insecurity. He gives us something in this. So there's this symbolic picture. There's this moment where the priest is laying his hands on the head of the goat and he's confessing all the sins of all the people. And I really hope that it was like a summary statement. Otherwise that would have taken a long time if it was today's day and age. Are you with me on this? Like if I was in the room, it might have taken a couple extra hours to confess all my sins from a year, but you get the idea, right? Now, something really interesting, traditional Jewish literature, when you read it, it says that the priest would take this red cord, and he would place this red cord on the head of the goat during this whole process, and then at the end of it, he would cut a portion of the cord, and he would place it on on the altar, and well-known Jewish tradition says that, in fact... Um, it is a well-known Jewish tradition, but there's no biblical reference to this. There's no biblical uh, understanding of this, but Isaiah would, um, would writes about this in, the, in a particular place because this red cord, when he would place it on the altar, when they would revisit it the next year, it would have turned white. And this happened year after year. Mysteriously, there's this red cord that turns white. And when Isaiah opens up his prophecy and he says that our skins were as scarlet and they're turned white as snow, most scholars believe that's a reference to this traditional Jewish prophecy. So hold on to that. We're going to come back to that later. Let's go back to the goat. This goat would be taken out into the wilderness. In fact, the tradition was that the person who was appointed to do this was not of Hebrew lineage because no Hebrew person wanted to be associated with the goat, this loaded goat that carried all the sins of the people, right? Right. And so they would actually get a Gentile, they would recruit one of their neighbors, like, hey, could you do us a favor? Like, this goat represents something to us and we need you to walk it into the wilderness. And they would take it way into the wilderness, like way out, like days away, because the symbolism really broke down. If the next morning you're like, you know, drinking coffee in the breakfast nook and the goat wanders in the backyard and starts chewing on your lawn, it's like, honey... All your sins just wandered back into the yard, right? You don't want the goat wandering back in. And so they would take the goat far enough away that it would be guaranteed to not return to the camp. So so there's this picture. There's this symbolism. After examining their hearts, after thinking about their brokenness, they would literally sit and they would watch the goat go over the horizon, carrying all of their brokenness. All of their fears, all their worry, they just watched that goat go. They literally believed that God was capable of removing their sins through this process. They believed that when the goat left town, so did their brokenness. The goat carried their sin. They didn't. And so there's this washing. There's this, there's this liberation that takes place. And so naturally, this, this system that we read about in Leviticus, it takes off, right? People are looking at the neighboring communities around them, they're looking at the barbaric nature of sacrifice, the insecurity that they have with their gods, and suddenly these people go, wait, we don't have to live this way, we don't have to live with this latent insecurity towards God, we can actually know where we stand with God, and so this Levitical practice, these things that we read about, they just take off, and eventually, times, time later, they build this massive temple in, in the city of Jerusalem, where these things can take place, and there's Thousands of priests and people lining up for days and sacrifices are being made because people now understand there's a God that we can know where we stand with and it, and it happens this way. So that is how God used religion. God used religion to show people who he was. But now let's talk about how God ended religion and why God ended religion. So you build this temple, but then there's drift slowly over time, they begin to drift back into religiosity. In fact, Martin Luther, the great theologian, said that religion is the default mode of the human heart, that there's something inside of you and I that has to prove something. There's something inside of you and I that says I have to earn something. And so we always default back to religiosity. And so eventually that happened. They recreated the insecurity. They recreated the fear. They recreated the anxiety around God. In fact, there were systems and structures and authorities, authorities put in place that protected this practice, and they propagated fear. There's a group called the Sadducees that profited literally financially. They made lots of money on religious fear and guilt. And after a short period of time, we are right. Humanity, we are right back where we started. Fear and anxiety and worry And then one day there's this Jewish rabbi that shows up, goes by the name of Jesus, (laughs) and he goes to a wedding at Cana, and his first miracle, he turns water into wine, but he uses the ceremonial religious washing pots of the Jews, and he offends the religious sensibilities of all the people in the room. Then he heals on the Sabbath, something that was forbidden by the law. He gathers unconventional disciples. He hangs out with people that he shouldn't hang out with. He he, he eats on days he shouldn't eat. He walks on days he shouldn't walk. He disobeys all a litany of rules and laws. Jesus spends three years of his life essentially offending the religious establishment. And then, remember the temple that we talked about. Jesus walks into the temple one day and he says, there is one in your presence who is greater than all of this. Talk about a scandalous statement being made, right? There is one greater than the temple that is here. Jesus insists, he says, listen, whatever is happening with me, what I'm about to do and show you is greater than this massive temple and anything that it ever accomplished for you. What's gonna happen through me is bigger than this. Jesus makes a whip of cords in that moment and he begins driving people out of the temple. It's quite the scene. He drives out the people that were exchanging money but they were extorting people. He drives out the people who were selling sacrifices for exorbitant rates. He drives them out and and, and essentially says in this moment, Jesus looks at the crowd and says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. Most of the people thought he was insane because they thought he was talking about the physical temple. Jesus was talking about himself. He was saying, God has come near. God has come near and religion is dead. Religion is hollow. It's empty. And the sacrifice is about to be made obsolete. Now, um, those protecting the system, they falsely accuse Jesus. They have him arrested. They beat him. They take him to an illegal trial. And then they lead him towards the cross. And there's this brief moment in history when it seems as if God is about to succumb to religion. And then he defeats it. Jesus breathes his last breath on the cross. But three days later, if you know the story, Mary Magdalene shows up to anoint his body. She's hopeless and desperate. And when she arrives at the tomb, he's not there. He's not there. They watched him die, and he's not there. And then the Gospels tell us that Jesus appears to his disciples, appears to hundreds of people. Eyewitness accounts over and over again. Jesus is alive, and death has been defeated, religion has been eradicated. When when I think about this moment, when I think about the moment when they realize what's taken place, they've seen what's gone on, they must have all gone back to that that moment in the book of John when John the Baptist sees Jesus walking through the Galilean wilderness and it says in John chapter 1, he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They must have been thinking like God is doing something massive in this moment. Later in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews who's making all sorts of sense of what's taking place in the book of Leviticus says this in Hebrews 10, he says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Like, God, you didn't want this stuff. The temple, it wasn't about this. Then he goes on in verse 12 and he says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And do you know what all of this is pointing to? Jesus is our Azazel. Jesus is our scapegoat. That's what the picture was pointing to hundreds of years before when they were making this sacrifice and and sending this goat off over the horizon. It was pointing to this day when Jesus would be our scapegoat. In fact... uh, uh, a couple of crazy things. Earlier I mentioned the red cord. Really interesting thing in Jewish history that the Mishnah, which is a key rabbinical text, the Mishnah describes this phenomenon that was mind-blowing. They say that at a certain point in history, they wrote this down, by the way, the, the, the Jewish rabbis wrote down that the people that rejected Jesus, the people that opposed him, the people that were behind his crucifixion, in their own book, you can read that, that this cord that had turned white for hundreds of years, it was recorded in history, that this one particular year, it stopped. And they wrote it down. They were like, hmm, came to the altar this morning. The cord that usually turns white didn't turn white, stayed red. What's up with this? That's kind of what they wrote in their journal that day. When was that, you ask? I'm glad you're asking this question. When do you think that happened? According to the Mishnah, it happened 40 years prior to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. So what happened 40 years prior to the destruction Of the temple. Well, the temple was destroyed in AD 70 by Titus, uh, the Roman general. 40 years, so 70 minus 40 is 30 AD. Do you know what took place in 30 AD? The crucifixion of Jesus took place. 30 AD. And this cord that was placed on the Azazel's head suddenly stopped turning like it always had. And the people who opposed Jesus wrote it down and said, huh, that's strange. (laughs) Or really beautiful, right? Or or think about this, think about this. Um, The the, the person that was assigned to lead the Azazel into the wilderness, it was never a Hebrew person, right? It was this Gentile that was chosen because no one wanted association with it. First of all, where was Jesus crucified? Was he crucified inside the city of Jerusalem? No, he was crucified outside the city, right? He was led outside the city. And who led him there? It wasn't the Hebrews, it was the Gentiles. It was the Romans who took them there. They led the Azazel into the wilderness To take away our sins. Why? Because Jesus is the Azazel. And and why is this so powerful? Why is this so meaningful? If you keep reading in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 16 it says, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days declares the Lord. I'll put my laws on their hearts. I'll write them in their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. I will remember those things no more. We will watch them go over the horizon on the back of that goat. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is not just the end of the sacrificial system. This is the end of religion. It's the end of religion. The whole idea of God being fickle and needing us to perform in order to make him happy, it's over, it's done, it's eradicated. He's saying, I just want you to see once and for all, this is not who I am, and that's not how I want you to live. That's what he says. A human existence that's lived in bondage to those ideas is over. That's what it's saying. And in its place, we have this life-changing reality, this thing that the writer of Hebrews calls forgiveness. Forgiveness, we're forgiven. We're washed. There's deliverance, there's freedom, there's liberty. You know, there's times I wonder about the symbolism of the cross. We have two of them in here on either side of the stage. Some people wear them around their necks. Some people um, get them tattooed on their bodies these days. Put them up in their houses. Do you ever realize this? It's an instrument of Roman execution. We took an execution device and we hung it in our building. Why? Because every time we look at the cross of Christ, every time we see it, it reminds us that he is our Azazel. It reminds us, when we look at the cross, it's like watching the goat walk out of the camp and into the wilderness. When we look to the cross, there's this reminder of, oh, that's right, I'm forgiven. Oh, that's right, I don't have to feel this way. Oh, that's right, that God loves me. That's what we see every time we see the cross. That's what we experience. We experience forgiveness, we're washed. The cross tells us that we are not what we have done isn't that good news? You are not the composite of all the things you have done well or done poorly. That is not who you are. And God is presenting an entirely new reality to us. In, in this, God doesn't just end religion, God reverses religion, and this is how. Forgiveness is powerful. If I have an issue with you or you have an issue with me, if, if there's unforgiveness between you and I, the first thing that gets strained is our relationship. Our relationship. If, there's, if I've made you mad, if I've upset you, there, there's, there's, a, there's an inability to relate to each other until there is forgiveness. But when there's forgiveness between me and another person, between me and you, in that moment, there's the restoration of relationship. We're restored. The relationship is Renewed. Do you realize that every single religious system in the world is about you having to do things to appease a God and get him to act on your favor with the exception of Jesus? In Jesus' case, he does all the work. He does what's necessary so that we can experience forgiveness. And when there is forgiveness, the point is always the restoration of relationship. That's what God is all about. That's what everything is pointing to—the restoration of relationship. In fact, so much of Jesus' words and ministry come into focus when we understand this. There's um, there's three stories in the Book of Luke that uh, probably for most of my life in ministry have been three of my favorite stories. They come rapid fire, one after another, in Luke chapter 15. Jesus is is teaching, and he tells the story of a of a man who had a hundred sheep, and one of them goes missing. And it says that the shepherd leaves the 99 to go after the one. He searches and when he finds the one, he lifts it and he puts it on his shoulders and he rejoices. The Bible says he rejoices and he says, for this one that I thought was lost has been found. This one that I thought was dead is alive. And then Jesus moves to the next story. The next story is about a woman who had these coins and she lost one of them. And it says that she searched. She searched into the night. She lit a lamp in her house and she searched and swept and scoured her home looking for this lost coin. And then when she finds it, Jesus says, she calls her neighbors, come rejoice with me for this coin that I thought was lost has been found. Jesus is, he's revealing the heart of the father and then he moves to the third story. And the third story is about a father and his son. And it reveals who God is towards us. He's showing us. In fact, I think sometimes we lose the beauty of this story of the father and son. And so I'm just gonna ask you right now to sit back for a moment and I just want you to watch the prodigal son with me and just observe what this looks like in today's day and age. Will you watch this with me? The Bible says that the father, when he sees his son, rejoices and he says, this son of mine who I thought was lost has been found who I thought was dead is alive it's that moment when the son says I will go back I'll go back and the moment he makes that decision, do you know what he experiences? the forgiveness of the father like that Jesus told those stories for a reason. He's told those stories because that's his heart towards us. From the very beginning, God has been trying to relieve us of our guilt and our shame and our brokenness. And he's been offering us forgiveness all along the way, saying, would you just experience my forgiveness so that you and I could be in relationship, so that I could run to you and throw my arms around you. The prodigal son, comes home and the father puts a ring on his finger and a, a robe on his back and he throws a party because that's who our heavenly father is. God reversed religion and I think he did that because he wants to reverse a lot of things in our lives, right? There's things that need to be reversed. There's things that need to be turned around. And, and I think today is a day of grand reversal. I, I know that Easter is called a religious holiday, but this is anything, anything but religion. This is not religion. This is about the relationship that we have with our heavenly father through Jesus Christ. And if you've turned Easter into a religious habit and it's like, hey, I'm gonna do it because we always do it and it's just a thing and that's another day on the calendar, can I just encourage you, let this day be a day when you reverse that thinking and you remember this is the day that we're reminded of the relationship we have in Christ. Amen. Would you stand with me? I know that some of you in the room, um, maybe a lot of you in the room, maybe you said yes to Jesus years and years ago and and you've been journeying with him for a while, but I truly believe today's a day when some people in the room, maybe you've just been pretty distant. Maybe you've been off in a foreign land and maybe you need to say yes to Jesus again. It's as simple as saying, I'm gonna go back. And for some of you, maybe you've just been exploring faith and exploring Christianity. And maybe today, maybe today, as crazy as it seems, Leviticus helped you maybe trust the Bible and trust the story about Jesus. And maybe today you say yes to Jesus for the very first time. I encourage you to do that and tell somebody. Tell, tell me, tell, send me a note, call me on the phone, tell a neighbor, tell a friend. But today's a day when all across the room, we should be saying yes to Jesus for all sorts of reasons, amen? Amen. Let me pray for us, and then we'll sing together. Lord, thank you for the life we have in you. Thank you that because you live, we can face tomorrow. Thank you, Lord, that you welcome us with open arms. Lord, thank you for your forgiveness and your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's sing together.
1: Oh, praise the name of...
0: If I didn't say, it's good to have Jamie back. Amen. (laughs) Uh, Such a great day celebrating with you guys. Uh, Such a wonderful time together. Thank you for being here. And uh, I'm just gonna offer this benediction to you now. May you be men and women who lean into your Azazel. May you watch as your guilt and shame and insecurity Go over the horizon. May you look at the cross and never be the same. May you experience true life because of the resurrected Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We love you guys so much. Happy Easter. Have an amazing day. And we'll see you guys soon. See you next Sunday.